I wish I had the sound effect that I could play. I'll ma- I'll try and make it myself. Da 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 da. Yeah, credited at the end of the movie. Say that song so many times at hockey games and such. Credited at the end of the movie to John Osborne, which I guess is his real name. But you know, it's used in the movie. Oh, it's not. You know, but the song doesn't ever appear. That that line doesn't ever appear in the film. Though there are lots of references to it. I thought. I don't know. You're the film music guy, Jordan. What do you think? I think. I mean, they definitely know that you're thinking about it. It doesn't actually show up as itself until the closing credits. Right. But they they open with um what back in black I think right, right. which is you know not the same guys but definitely a uh, a similar kind of heavy metal sound. And uh, just sort of in the in the mostly orchestral underscoring, there's a lot of heavy metal guitar just sort of floating around the background. And also, definitely... I felt like there were harmonic progressions that made me think of that, right? That made me think of that kind of modal power chord chugging a lot of the time. You know what? They were definitely there, but... Those are something that you also get in all the other superhero soundtracks. Like, those oh. are all over the uh, the last Batman soundtrack, all over the Spider-Man soundtracks. So, like, while they might well have been thinking about Iron Man, uh, when I was sort of, like, listening to it, I was like, oh, okay, so this is the same basic sound as Batman and this other stuff. Huh. So but- it has that kind of weird – it has that weird kind of minor key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, minor pentatonic. Sort of sound. Yeah. Uh Okay, well, this is a this is a post nine eleven blockbuster movie, and it's an adaptation of the Iron Man mythology. Uh, he it was first um, he was first what fighting communists, right? When he was when he was originally created, when the character was originally created, I think it was either in uh, Vietnam or something like Vietnam, right? Or was it earlier should... than that? We should probably say now, once and for all, uh, for this and all future podcasts, that, spoiler alert, we're going to go through the plot in detail. Oh, right, yeah. Sorry, I meant to say that at the beginning. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so he in, he was originally fighting communists and captured by the Red Chinese, right? Is that how oh. it goes? Right, right, right. I'm looking it up now. Um and you get a little of that. A little of that still comes through in this movie because, like his his friend scientist that uh, he meets in the prison camp is named Yensin, which is a much more Chinese name than it is uh, sort of crypto Arabic, which is what the bad guys turn out to be uh, at the beginning of this. Film. Who who are the bad guys? It's unclear who he's fighting. It's unclear to me. Really, they, they go to a lot of trouble to articulate who the the group is, like yeah. the, the group of people out in the desert, and they're like they mention a lot of times they're from a lot of different countries, like they speak a lot of different languages. Um, there's at one point like someone's knocking on the door and someone's like, "That's Hungarian. This is crazy. There are no Hungarians in in Afghanistan." So they go to a lot of trouble to say like, "These are not Afghanis. These are not or I forget what, what the proper way of saying. It. I think Afghani is the money, um, but these are not people from Afghanistan." Um, these are people from all over the place, and they've come to Afghanistan to profiteer and to, to fight for for conquests and all this other stuff. Um, to profiteer, yeah, no, yeah because well, that's well, why people like... join the. That's why people join the, you know, Islamic, you know, militancy because they're trying to profiteer. Yeah, these guys are just so. Though, because like at several points they kind of reference 
Genghis Khan. And there's actually they're actually even moving away from saying, you know, that these are that these are Islamist terrorists or that they're terrorists at all, but that they are some kind of empire builders. They're they're plunderers. Um, of some kind, they're almost they're, they're they're kind of sand pirates, basically. Or that they're, uh-huh. or <laughs> that they're religious at all, you know? Right. No, you don't really. I I didn't I didn't pick that up at least in, in my in my first year. No, they're, they're religious. No, there's um, nothing. No, there's no there is no religion, right, in the Iron Man universe, really. I don't well, think we see yeah. There's the Mandarin. You could get into the Mandarin, but that's awfully complicated. And there's that one for a sequel, no doubt. <laughs> Man, the silliest piece of craziness ever. Well, are you going to leave us hanging on that, or are you going to explain what the Mandarin is? <laughs> oh, y'all explain to you what the Mandarin is. The Mandarin is a Chinese guy, right? He looks like a lot of other Chinese guys. He's about 6'4", he's green, he's got long, luxurious hair. Um, and he, he, he's like, hey, I'm from the Orient. I got this fat silk robe, you know, like, and hey, I've got magical rings because the Orient is where riches are from, and I can shoot laser beams from my rings. And it's just like, <laughs> I mean, DC has problems making movies because a lot of their superheroes are really stupid. Marvel has problems making movies because a lot of their villains are really, really stupid. Like, Spider-Man never fights Mysterio. You know, like, and I can't imagine. I cannot imagine a movie in which the Mandarin was the main antagonist. I mean, he fights the Fantastic Four. He fights Iron Man. You know, but, like, he is... He's got a little Fu Manchu mustache. You know, like, he looks like Ming the Merciless, except, like, you know, he's got dark skin, which makes him scarier, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Mandarin's freaking crazy. They should not make a movie. I was talking to my roommate about this today. Are they going to put the Mandarin in the next movie? I don't know. I don't know. If they do, they're going to totally retcon him and make him like a Chinese engineer who like made the rings himself and make him like a rival Iron Man or something. I can't imagine them being like, I have the mysteries of the East and I will shoot you with them. <laughs> technology will be no match for my Orientalism. You know, like it's just anyway, it's xenophobia is what it is. Basically. Uh, mentioned in passing there, Mysterio, I believe, was the guy who had a laser light show device that allowed him to create illusions and wore a fishbowl on his head. Is that, is yes, that correct? This is, in fact, correct. <laughs> um, and, and he is heavily featured in – there's one comic book arc in which Mysterio is heavily featured that is widely seen as, like, really, really excellent. And that is the Kevin Smith Daredevils. Um, and I tell you, I read them, and as soon as Mysterio shows up, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go take a crap because this is totally wasting my time. Uh, <laughs> and I went back to go crap, but that was like years ago, so I've done it many times since as well. So we haven't even we haven't even talked about the main villain of Iron Man, who is the dude. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Jeff Bridges as I can't even remember the character's name. Obadiah. Obadiah, right. Uh, and the Ironmonger. Yeah. Obadiah Springfield. <laughs> yeah, he's Batman. No, isn't that, that Jed- isn't it Jedediah Springfield? Oh, you're right. You're right. Um, Jedediah. But he's the bad guy. It's kind of unclear what he wants as well. Mm. I mean, I think that he's, he's, uh, he, he's upset with – he seems to like preemptively be upset for what Tony Stark does after – the things that happen that he put into motion happen. Like he seems to want to further the interests of the earnings of the company, but I think that he's sort of a, a symbol of, you know, runaway American corporate ambition because he uh, engages in these businesses that generate earnings for his company and for his stockholders while really having no frame of reference for like how they matter in the actual world. Like he seems, I don't think he seems particularly bloodthirsty. I mean, he he's a, he's really bad and like he wants to murder people and stuff, but like. 
he doesn't have a huge MO. He just is rich and powerful and wants to continue doing the things that he feels his station demands of him. It's kind of it's a it's a straw man of, you know, military industrial corporate right complex. Well, and he's very well have, acted. You also have sort of personal ambition there and you get that in the the opening scenes where they're sort of doing the Tony Stark bio where Obadiah had sort of briefly taken over the uh uh, the company after Stark's father died and believed himself to be the kind of rightful heir um, and then was sort of ousted by the, you know, by the Wunderkind. Um, and so there is just sort of, I mean, so I think the motivation is there, right? It's a little bit of personal animosity combined with this kind of, you know, Machiavellian capitalism. So I think, I think, I think it makes sense. I think it works together well. I always thought it was a little bit unfortunate when a superhero villain's main reason for existing as a villain is because of the superhero. You know, like, like it's stupid that the Iron Man villain is only a villain because he hates Tony Stark. You know, it's it's it like it's like um, Batman talks about it a lot of the time about um, in The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, he talks about how if he weren't Batman, um, the Joker wouldn't be the Joker. And so he feels responsible for creating these things. And he is to an extent because these villains wouldn't exist if not for his comic book. Um, <laughs> but, but that's not true because, I mean – I think that, um, again, I think the villain Obadiah is much more structural. Like, you know, even if, if there weren't Tony Stark, there would still be, you know, ambitious people who, who are committed to perpetuating the military-industrial con- uh, con- Right, he would still be so, selling arms to, to Afghan and warlords. He just wouldn't be kidnapping Robert Downey Jr. while he's doing it. Or, as the right. West Wing put it, uh, Chinese political prisoners are going to be selling soccer balls with their teeth whether or not we sell them Big Macs. So let's sell them Big Macs. <laughs> Wow. Uh, the interesting thing about the, the villains in this movie that I, uh, I was picking up on, um, that I think is like, it represents the filmmakers trying not to be racist and ending up being more racist. Which is that, like, <laughs> at, at the start, right, when he gets kidnapped, the villain, the, the guy who seems to be in charge of this, uh, this you know, crypto Al-Qaeda group, they call them the Ten Rings or something like that, um, the whatever they are. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh That's totally God. a Mandarin <laughs> Yeah, they're totally laying the groundwork there, aren't they? Um, oh, yeah. That guy's going to come out with so many rings. Oh, it's going to be awesome. Like, <laughs> but they're all in one person. But uh, yeah, but anyway, so like the first guy who's sort of interrogating Tony Stark, he, he looks very much like Saddam Hussein. Like he, he's heavy set. He's got facial hair. Um, and he's speaking Arabic, which, you know, they're in Afghanistan, but whatever. That's what he's speaking. It doesn't seem to speak English. And then after you know that you, know, you speak Arabic, right, right, Jordan? Well, I, I, I speak enough to recognize it when uh, when people yeah. are talking it on screen. That's about it. This is legit. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, he so that's like it seems to be the villain. Then a little bit of stuff happens, and uh, it turns out that he wasn't in charge at all. Instead, it's this guy who's much more, uh, like much less ethnic looking. Um, who doesn't have any facial hair. He looks more or less like Imhotep from the Mummy movies. He's kind of or like season a while so, back uh say that again oh and he also looks a lot like faid from 24 uh you know i 
I'll take your word for it. I don't watch it. Never mind. But, um, I'll stop. But I, I believe you. I believe you. And um, and he speaks English. You know, so it's like a more westernized person is in charge. And I can see why they wanted to do that, just because it's inconvenient to have to do subtitles all the time. But then, you know, it, it drops further, and it turns out that no, no, it's uh, it's Jeff Bridges is the guy who's really the villain. And I mean, you could look at this uh, positively as saying that, like, see, the real seeds of this conflict are in America's own capitalist system, or you could see it as, you know, these ethnic people can't even run their own terrorist organization. They need to call in the Americans to do it. <laughs> Outsourcing. They're taking all their jobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah totally. saying, my grandfather was an American terrorist and, and, and his <laughs> grandfather before him, but now all of our terrorist jobs have moved overseas. Is, yeah. it, is there, I mean, right, race in the movie is sort of problematic. I don't know. There's... Well, no, race in the movie is is definitely interestingly addressed. I mean, there's this whole issue of really trying not to offend anybody. And I remember hearing a lot about – I think hearing one screenwriter talk about it, I think in reference to Gary Oldman's character in Air Force One, who is very conveniently – a Central Asian Caucasian terrorist, which makes him much more acceptable to the viewer than other things. And I think this is also in reference to The World Is Not Enough, which had a North Korean villain, and there was a lot of protesting. And I think there were some lawsuits because they're like, you're painting Koreans in, in a very bad light. Um, and it's like, well, we can't even make – the only people we can make villains anymore are corporate people because uh, yeah. nobody is going to be like, oh, corporate people are good. You know? <laughs> um, did, you, uh, did you see the, uh, the Onion this week? They had uh, America's slicked back hair guys uh, protest negative portrayal in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was right on. I really yeah. thought they had a really uh, biting commentary. On you know, and these movies are made by giant multinational conglomerates, corporations. Yeah, I mean, we could anyone, go... Anyone some... see the irony in that? I mean... I, I yeah, suppose they make it's the villains because no one else will let them do it, and they make tons of money off of it. I suppose it's it's a trivial irony, but you know, no, it's not trivial. I mean, I think it shows that it doesn't really matter who the villain is; it matters who's making the movies, and people should stop focusing on how they're being portrayed and start focusing on what they're doing with their time. The, uh, my point is that the machinery of capitalism is oiled with the blood of the workers. <laughs> <laughs> that's sorry. also uh, that's also what Iron Man is oiled with, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and they should totally, uh, they should totally like do a story arc in the Iron Man comic books that are like ostensibly the uh, Iron Man comic books that were being made in Russia by like Russian artists when Iron Man was really popular, which is called the Machinery of Capitalism. Yeah. Like, that <laughs> well, I think I think that's when you get right down to it. You get to one of the to transition a little bit. You get to the core of what makes Iron Man a little bit different from a lot of the other movies we've seen, which is. Iron Man is a superhero who's created rather than a superhero who is born. Um, he's not the result of mutation. He's not the result of anything his parents really did to him. I mean, yes, they gave him this company, but, I mean, there's a lot to say that he did a lot of this himself. And and, and He, he would have gotten the company he, anyway. You know, like it, it, his genius would have – he would have ended up being able to build all those things anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, if anything, he, he is departing from what he's been given. Um, he's the sort of anti-Luke Skywalker. Well, you know, Star Wars is a very aristocratic movie. You know, they, the people who are blessed with this particular goodness, you know, these, these people who are strong in the force are the people that need to be paying attention to what their responsibilities are and the people who should be in charge. Um, and Iron Man is much more the people who are capable of doing it um, for whatever reason. 
they're capable uh, have a responsibility for for creating themselves and creating the world around them uh, i mean there is something very dehumanizing about being a public servant because you you basically are divorcing yourself a little bit from uh the sort of um base appetites of humanity which we sort of acknowledge especially in capitalist america are what drive a lot of our system forward you're stepping back from that and saying no i don't need those things you know i have this higher calling and it does it does dehumanize and i think that that is part of why iron man goes into his suit you know it's his like his his works become his depiction his countenance workers uh, of the world identity. unite you have nothing to lose but your midi chlorians <laughs> <laughs> well not yeah well, start zing yeah wow. zing. he's a so he's a superhero of a of a particular type and his he's like batman in that all his powers all his powers such as they are are technological are things that he's come up with Right, but he's yeah, unlike but I Batman. Think, I think the motiv- yeah, sorry. I think the yeah. motivation is is somehow. I mean, it is. It does have to do with you know these personal motivations, right? Batman is 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 sort of driven by this 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 quest for vengeance or for these you know these ghosts that are haunting him over the deaths of, of his parents. Whereas, I mean, Tony Stark is much more, at least in the movie portrayal, you know, sees his weapons in in Afghanistan and says, "I have to, I have to right this wrong." And it's so it's the um, you know the actual superhero work is actually very much part of the aim. Um, you know, uh, it's very connected to the motivation. Whereas I think Batman, it's it's more tangential. I mean, Batman is much more sort of like taking out his his demons on on criminals at large. Yeah, Batman. I mean, is Batman insane, can stop being Batman. Right? What? Batman is insane. <laughs> this is very true, right? Like that, that's that's a big part of the Batman mythology is that like he has he has some real issues that he uh, that he is trying to work through by punching people. Right. <laughs> it's like it's like the talking cure, except it's the punching cure. Whereas Iron Man, if I'm uh, understanding you right, Ryan, is like you know he's made a mess and he's trying to clean it up. I mean, right. That's how I see. That's how I see it working. Is that he just says, "Well, I'm a capable person," you know, and I. And he, he seems to have like a genuine change of heart after uh, after having been in Afghanistan, and he seems to have believed, to a certain extent, believed the lies that he had told, saying that, "Oh, you know, our weapons do." much more good than harm you know they they promote peace in the long run or that when they're when they're in the hands of the in the hands of the right people and frankly that's one thing that rang false to me because who is that naive you know what weapons manufacturer is that naive about the role of weapons you know the belief i mean the legit like the legitimacy that belief really does i mean like that that is really central to the turn like i mean because if you don't believe that then you don't necessarily believe the motivation for building you know version 2.0 of the suit when he comes back i mean you really have to believe that he was if not if, if not naive he really had just that that was the only way he could sleep at night i mean he had just convinced himself of it and this was a, a sort of cruel wake up um, here's what I buy, though. I buy that he was in like an alcoholic haze or something, or that he was, you know, he was just not paying attention really to the intricacies and subtleties of the problems of, you know, the global balance of power and the role of violence in, right, in making, uh, you know, right, you know, in, I don't know. Well, a, right. I think Downey Jr. does that well too. I mean, he has this like the like you know that sort of backstory section. Not only is this alcoholic haze, but he's just is living the good times, the womanizing, the 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 jets, the uh, 
um, you know, the sort of uh, go-go dancing uh, uh, stewardesses. Uh, flight he's kind of a nerd. He's sort of a nerd's dream of what, what nerds really – it's a nerd yeah. wish fulfillment fantasy. Speaking of nerding out, there's a great little moment on the plane um, where when uh, it cuts to him and Ta- Terrence Howard kind of, uh, you know, when they're not doing business. The, mu- the rap video playing is, uh, is Ghostface Killer. Um, very briefly, and uh, Ghostface actually, um, his first album was called Iron Man, uh, his first solo album, and he actually, throughout all the solo albums, one of his personas is Tony Starks. Um, huh. So, so this is like a brief, brief little nod to uh, to Ghostface into like the like a sort of cultural pop cultural full circle, um, and I kind of like it a lot, um, and and it just it, it does. I think also relate to the how how divorced um, Tony Tony Stark's uh, persona is from like the sort of weightiness of what he's uh, of the business that he's engaged in um, at that point. Right. I think we can all agree, Robert Downey, fantastic job. Yeah. Oh sure. Yeah. Um, does I want to? Uh, is the action in this movie as integrated in the movie as the action in, say, Indiana Jones? I mean, they're movies of in- extremely different types, but you know. Uh, let me just let me just advance the advance the idea that you know there's a there's sort of a good there's a great and a still good but lesser movie here and the great movie has Robert Downey Jr. in it as Tony Stark and the lesser movie is a summer action spectacular within Iron Man you mean yeah it's two movies huh. Yeah, I can see that. Like the lesser movie is the one when Iron Man is the CGI suit, and the the great movie is the one where it's Robert Downey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'd buy that. I mean, I I loved Robert Downey talking, you know, throwing looks at the robot arm that's helping him build the suit. Like I thought was brilliant. You know. I mean, I definitely think that that movie needs the expectations that are set up by the genre association. Uh huh. You know, in order to build a lot of the dramatic pacing and tension that it uses. I mean, I think you have to sort of know a little bit about what Iron Man will eventually be up to in order to sit through a lot of the scenes about how he goes about getting ready for it. There's a lot of building, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of buildup, and I feel like if you didn't already know that he was going to be a superhero and you didn't have a sense for the kind of movie you were going to be watching, and if there wasn't the modulation of the pacing that's associated with the the action sequences, um, then it wouldn't be... It wouldn't work. Now, I do think that you can divide the action sequences up, and some of them are more relevant to the story than others. And I think the reason for that is that Iron Man sort of departs from his house to go on these different adventures. And, and he, he, so he has a division, a very clear division between when he's you know, Tony Stark and when he's Iron Man. There's a few times where he sort of really, really has to do it, and other times when he kind of has to do it, but he could stay home if he wanted to. Um, and I think that those sort of I-could-stay-home-when-I-wanted-to moments um, – those are the ones that, that aren't really like Indiana Jones because Indiana Jones, once he gets going, he's going. You know, I mean, that, that's part of why the sequences all match up. It's sort of like Oklahoma, right? You don't take a break to sing a song. You sing a song that advances the plot. It's the same thing with Indiana Jones. You know, like you don't have an action sequence that's separate from the movie. You have an action sequence that pushes him somewhere, that has something happen to him, and where he makes choices that are relevant to what happens in the future. Uh, I mean, that's not a rule. Division, I mean, don't you always get that division in superhero movies of you have to, you know, you always have to change into the costume. You know, Clark Kent always has to run into the phone booth. Like, I mean, and uh, so the question is, does, is the division between, 
the sort of the narrative and the action any greater in Iron Man than in any other superhero movie. And I'm not sure. I mean, that's, that's definitely a good point. I mean, I think that um, a lot of the times the Tony Stark plot is just such a total throwaway and totally worthless that it's, it stops being an issue. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example of that. Um, I mean, like the Thomas Jane Punisher movie. For example, like there's a whole plot of Punisher lives next door and he's so sad. So, hey, you know, guy from that sitcom, go over there and make him pancakes, you know, and it's like this is really, really stupid. Um, there's the whole thing about like Rebecca Romaine Stamos is being abused by her boyfriend and the Punisher has to sort of get involved in kind of an intervention and it goes violent and it's all – and you're watching this movie and it's just really tiresome until Kevin Nash busts through the door in a crazy sailor outfit and starts punching him. And then you're like, OK, this is the movie I paid about three times more than I should have paid to see. Um, <laughs> so. so you're saying that um, you know if the if the narrative part of the story is sufficiently bad, then the action set pieces no longer seem like interruptions. Then the narrative right. seems like an interruption. Exactly. But I, I think that 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 doesn't really get at something like Indiana Jones, where they really like none of it seems like an interruption. You know, it, it right, all right. seems to kind of work. Yeah, because well, you know it's very linear. This leads to this, leads to this. It's just, it's a it's a sort of narrative of discovery, and each thing, you know, each discovery leads to another map travel sequence into the next the next part, um, the next the next uh, station on on the on the way to the final destination. I mean, the second sure. half of Ang Lee's Hulk movie is like that, but not the first half. Um, and uh, Iron Man is instead of a narrative of discovery, is a Bildungsroman, where the uh, the particular thing that is being uh, built is a iron suit to fight crime in. Absolutely, <laughs> and this was the, the fun. I mean, very much so. I mean, uh, the good middle third of the like the sort of middle third of the movie is like you know him doing the like fancy like re- rotating 3D computer building. Um, I mean, they spend a lot of time really doing that, and and I think I think. As much as you're you're joking about that, I think that's exactly what it is. Um, it is also totally a Bildungs Roman, but all Superman yeah. movies are Bildungs Romans. Oh yeah, sure, sure. And I think that you know, like I was joking, and yet at the same time, I'm totally not joking. And that's that's yeah. sort of what we do here, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Touche. Um, one thing I'd like to point out, though, about the uh, the whole all of his like you know being a scientist building the suit thing is that like I think that was clearly made by people who are not scientists at all, and by people who are <laughs> by people who are essentially artists of one sort or another. You know, they're they're writers or directors or something. Because writers, like really, the, the the character that you get there is not a scientist. He's an artist, and he even he compares himself to Leonardo da Vinci. I think at one point, right? Or like you know, or sort of downplays the comparison. Is like he, he goes off alone and creates this thing out of you know just out of his mind and his spirit. He doesn't go to the lab and like have a whole bunch of techs who are just like working on one little actuator and uh, you know make uh, make a thousand circuits before you get the one that actually works. And so no, on. that's how Obadiah works. He has the legions of minions. I mean, that's how bad capitalism works. But, like, I think if it's like any science or, you know, movie, it's actually more like a beautiful mind where the, the, you know, the science swirls around you and you control them (laughs) with your mind. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Essentially. He does have, he does have that, like, Tom Cruise in Minority Report, you know, a heads-up, multi-touch interface. (laughs) 
Right, right. Which uh, anyone who's ever, you know, tried to use something as simple as a tablet PC yeah. can tell you those things suck. You know, it's never better than a keyboard. Ah, the iPhone's <laughs> iPhone's pretty good. Oh, okay, fair I can't enough, wait till those are being these these the three D multi touches being used for presidential elections and like you know. In about 20, 24, 24 years down the road, you know, they're a, a multi-rotating uh, electoral college map. It'll be fucking sweet. Um, I, think, I think my favorite. Oh. No, go, Pete. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was gonna say I think my, my favorite reference uh, to this phenomenon in movies is in Star Trek Four. Um, which is when uh, they're in the aluminum manufacturing plant because they need to make a tank capable of holding enough water to transport the humpback whales into the future Yep. Uh, so that they, their songs can appease the aliens about to destroy the earth. And <laughs> and uh, and Scotty is talking to the guy who runs the aluminum. He's not joking. He's not even exaggerating the plot of no, Star Trek. exactly what the movie is about. They travel through uh, time. They're in a Klingon, uh, Klingon bird of prey. They're yes. not in the Enterprise. No, and they, they land oh, okay. on Just Earth. Just so we're clear. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they land on Earth with a cloaking device, and then they split off. And, like, Kirk goes to get laid, sort of. And then, like, Chekhov goes on a crazy, like, Red Skeleton-esque adventure in a <laughs> nuclear submarine or whatever, an aircraft carrier. Tell me, where, do they, keep, where do they keep the nuclear vessels? Yeah, the <laughs> nuclear vessels, because he needs to get like nuclear material to power the ship or some stupid thing like that but anyway like and scotty is talking to the manufacturing guy who's like a very blue collar managerial type of guy and he's he's basically trying to say that if you let us take as much as we want um we will teach you how to make transparent aluminum that will be very strong and you'll be able to see through it and it'll be able to hold water and next generation plexiglass essentially exactly and so he sits down in front of what's basically an old school mac you know, like one of those which is oblong, you know, like it's narrower than, than it is um, wide. It's the one with uh, like the screen built into the cabinet. And that yeah, was a yeah, it's a Mac classic, cabinet. right? Exactly. And he sits down in front of it and he goes, computer? <laughs> Hello, computer. <laughs> it's like, it's like, and then, but, look at his face. And then the guy's like, yeah. use the mouse, use the mouse. And so he picks up the mouse like it's a microphone and says, hello, computer, <laughs> talking into the, to the computer mouse. And then it's like, use the keyboard. And the punchline is, keyboard, how quaint. <laughs> and then he starts typing. He's like really fast. And he like maps out the chemical structure of this thing in some sort of AutoCAD-esque program in like five seconds. Um, is it clear that I was watching the Star Trek movies again and again and again when I was a child? Uh, at this, at the same time that you guys were probably watching the Indiana Jones movies, and that this accounts for like my, you know, what the Star Trek movies and the Police Academy movies. I feel like uh, if we do a plot summary of Star Trek Three, this podcast will explode. <laughs> <laughs> Those movies have the craziest plots. All right, back to Iron Man. Does the love interest work for you? I love it because it doesn't go too far. They they check swing it, and I think that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Because... Do you buy them? Do you buy? I buy Robert Downey doing that that banter. That's what he did on Ally McBeal. That's what he. I mean, that's what he does in everything. He's brilliant at it. Gwyneth I will Paltrow? say that um, my my, uh, my my fiance, wow, uh, said that uh, that he was smoking hot in that movie, and you know, I'll, I'll certainly take her word for that. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow, I don't know. She, uh, I think she worked. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the whole point that it isn't really a love plot, and they really have this other kind of relationship, and mostly he's just a horn dog. He's whenever she's like, she shows up hot, he's like, "Oh, you're hot! I would totally want to get with you." 
Um, and she sort yeah, of reminds him of only, their I mean, relationship. He fucks many women, but she is the only one who penetrates him. Um, yes. I'm glad that somebody brought that up. There's a, that's a really, a really kinky scene, isn't it? Where she like fists this cavity in his chest and is like, oh, it's full of mucus. Oh, and he's sort of like writhing in pain whenever she moves her hand too fast. <laughs> it's really touching. I think it's, it's really beautiful. <laughs> it's the most loving sex act that's ever been committed to film in, you know. But I think that also there's something, I mean, Pete's right. It's, they don't have a romantic relationship. They have a work relationship. But then it's like it's played up for uh, for laughs when he flagrantly sexually harasses her, you know? <laughs> and and it's not like, you know, they, they just are both into it. That happens in movies a lot, and, you know, that doesn't make it okay, but it's not surprising. She understands in that scene that, that this is not okay what he's doing. And she tells him, like, like, look, you're my boss. I can't dance with you. And he's like, dance with me anyway. Because you have to do what I say. And then she does. I don't know. I felt a little gross watching it. <laughs> but at the end at the end of the movie, isn't it haven't they sort of crossed the line into like doesn't he say like I would have to have a girlfriend who's like really into yeah, but remember me that and scene. knows my like she has that repost. Right? I'm sorry, I interrupted yeah. you. No, 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 but what that you know, I, the point wasn't gonna get any better. Oh, just that um that, I mean, he's, he, again, he gets into it and he like decides he's going to try to seduce her again and like get with her again. And she totally shuts him down <laughs> and, and she just, she just rejects him totally. And it's great. You remember that night? And she's like, yeah, that night when we danced and I was wearing that dress and then we went out on the balcony and then you went to get me a drink and you never came back. And you <laughs> and left me just... standing there the whole damn time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, by the way, you're a douchebag and I don't date douchebags, even if they are like superheroes. Um, I thought that was great because it clarifies, yeah, they're more than coworkers. They're very good friends. They're confidants. They mean a lot to each other. But, like, he is not up to her standards. Well, they're not, co- they're not co-workers. I mean, no, he's, he's, the, he's her superior, you know, employer. He's, he's yeah. a superior officer, I nearly said. The, like, the military mentality pervades uh, everything. Um, Terrence Howard was also in this movie. I mean, did he even make a dent? I mean, I'm a big War Machine fan, so I'm excited for the sequel on it. But, I mean, he didn't really do a heck of a lot of good stuff. It's important he's in the scenes. Um, yeah. You need to have a straight man for Iron Man to go up against and talk to. Um, and he plays a really important part in the script. But, I mean, I, I think that he – a lot of the characters are pretty actively crafted and have very strong personalities. And uh, Rhodes is more passive and um, – he more is sort of there to help move the plot along, and, and he's a functional character. But we don't really give – he doesn't really get a chance to shine in this movie. Definitely not. How do you think this is going to perform uh, vis-a-vis the other – I mean it's, an, it's another big summer for superhero movies. You know, we have, we have Batman. We have Hulk. We have Hancock uh, coming out. Oh boy. How, how do you think this is going to uh, line up, stack up against uh, what else? You think this is going to stand the test and be the winning uh, superhero movie of the summer? Or do you think that, you know, how, how do you think it's going to fare vis a vis the other offerings? I think the uh, its main competition is Batman, probably. I think the uh, you know the first one a lot of people liked, and then you've got the, the Heath Ledger thing. I think that everyone in America is probably going to go see Batman, unless it turns out to, to suck a lot. He's, yeah, but I think it blows it out of the water in terms of box office, right? Like 150 million in the first two weekends. 
That's insane. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Especially in such a accounts, tough time. What do you think accounts for that that box office success? Do you think people are just ready for uh, a blockbuster, and this was the first one to come out, and so everybody just sort of went out, or is it the the critical? You know, people saw the critical consensus because I wasn't probably going to go to see it. And then I saw that the reviews were great and heard people raving about it, so I went. So you, what what do you think accounts for? There was like a perfect. There was a, a like a perfect storm, wasn't there? Hmm. It got a lot of word of mouth. I remember some executives saying that the movie really got a huge boost from word of mouth, that it was strong throughout the opening weekend, throughout the second weekend. Um, I mean, it got over 90% positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got big stars in it. You know, it's got the something for everybody. The second weekend was only like 50%, which is, which is low for a movie of this type. Very low for a movie that grosses, you know, nine digits its opening weekend. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, Iron Man is not a really hardcore, much-beloved character. Not in the way that Batman is, not in the way Spider-Man is. Um, and anybody who's watched any of the Iron Man cartoons, I think, would appreciate that a lot of the Iron Man media out there leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, so there's nothing that says, ooh, this is Iron Man, this is going to be good. You know, It's a movie that was supposed to come out years ago, got postponed because Tom Cruise was going to be in it, and then he didn't want to do it. And it was in limbo for a while, and it finally came out, and wow, it's a huge hit. Um, I mean, I think that that uh, Jordan's fiance gives us a clue into that, into why that happened. Uh, <laughs> I mean, another issue is you've got, you know, you've got inflation and, and all this other stuff. But still, it was very successful. And The Dark Knight has its work cut out for it, and if it wants to beat it, um, if I can totally see it getting some bad reviews, getting some tepid reviews. Um, but I mean, I think I think it will do really well. I, I, I hope that it does. Uh, it certainly is the kind of project I want to encourage. But if, for instance, he looks great. Heath Ledger looks great. In in yeah. the trailer, I mean, he looks yeah. just like scary and incredible. One problem that the movie could end up having is that like it looks like it's going to be dark, and really that's not what people look for for their summer blockbusters. It's not you what know, I they, look they want for. to go in having a good time. Yeah. Uh, maybe to wrap this up, here's from uh, here's from the Wikipedia entry on the Iron Man movie. John Favreau planned Iron Man as the first in a trilogy and has signed on all the original actors. The day following the film's first highly successful opening weekend, Marvel Entertainment announced a release date of April 30th, 2010. April 30th. So now we're pushing into April for the beginning of the summer movie season. Uh, April 30th, 2010 for Iron Man 2. Favreau, are you ready for it, Pete? Favreau feels depicting Iron Man's nemesis, the Mandarin, who was oh, no! who was created <laughs> as a metaphor for communism, will be challenging as he finds the character dated. He also wants to. <laughs> oh my God! That uh, that slightly westernized uh, Al Qaeda guy that, that you don't actually see him get killed. I bet they're going to bring that guy back as the Mandarin. He wants to. Streamline the effort uh, it takes for Stark to put on his armor. Uh, considering the assembly line effort he makes in the first film, Terrence Howard said he'd like to follow the slow arc of the comics with Rhodes temporarily becoming Iron Man while Stark succumbs to alcohol. Oh, we didn't talk about his alcoholism. It's not. It's it's treated as a kind of a plot thing in the movie, not really like a serious problem. I guess John Favreau's idea is that they get darker. Right as as they go, right, which makes sense because Tony Stark is a pretty dark fellow in the in the seventies um, when the Iron Man character actually gets something to distinguish himself from a whole lot of 
bullshit superheroes, if you'll excuse my language, <laughs> um, which is like, oh, he's an alcoholic. So that makes him different from Thor, who's not an alcoholic, I guess. Um, <laughs> and I think there's a Thor movie coming out, too, isn't there? Didn't they announce there's going to be a Captain America movie? There's going to be a Thor movie. They're going to do a big crossover movie. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that Iron Man as the alcoholic philandering superhero is uh, is totally why he's still around and he hasn't been relegated to the same dustbin as like you know Plastic Man or you know um, that that Mister Terrific guy who said fair play on his chest all the time. Okay, I don't know. Well, oh, another thing I want to ask before we uh, close is what does everybody think about Samuel L. Jackson, Agent of Shield? I mean, I didn't watch it, but I had on my TiVo for a long time the movie Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, starring one David Hasselhoff, and I'm disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> That was a long time resident of my TiVo queue. <laughs> Let me tell you, that thing sat there for like a year and a half. Um, and I, I think Schechner, that was when I was living with Schechner, who was another um, OTI writer. Uh, and I, I regret he is not on this podcast so that he could talk about uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., because I think he might have actually watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's. A, I think Nick Fury's a great character. I thought the way that the Shield agents in this movie were depicted was wonderful. Like really, really great. The way that they depicted this sort of old school, like stiff jawed fearlessness. This very unglamorous, like blue suit wearing, you know, evil fighting, responsible federal agent kind of vibe that they had. How like sort of dowdy they were, and the fact that they were still like fairly phenomenal badasses. Um, it gets away from some of the flash. You know, the Lobo factor in superherodom, which is that everything needs to be totally kick-ass all the time. Yeah. Um, anyway, I didn't see – I didn't stay at the end of the movie. <laughs> I left when the credits were starting, so I missed Sam Jackson, but I, I just wanted to throw that in there. Cool. All right. Well, uh, more more summer blockbusters coming up on the Overthinking It podcast. Uh, you know, subscribe at www.overthinkingit.com. Thank you to Ryan Sheely. Yep, uh, thank you. Hey, no, no, no. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Jordan Stokes? Who's not answering me? And Peter Fensley. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Fuck you, dude. <laughs> Fuck you. Right in your facial vagina of a beard. And Peter Fensley. <laughs> the Mandarin? They're doing the Mandarin? Really? <laughs> Uh, overthinking it.com and we are out